Hey, John. I can't hear you. Can uh, you hear me? Yes, perfect now. Okay, great. Hi, I'm Cyril, your host, and welcome to my podcast that I called I Really Want to Do This. In this podcast, I interview guests from all walks of life and try to understand the various ways that different types of people with different backgrounds and experiences succeed in achieving their goals in their very own ways. Think of the past 10 years in your own life. Have you had a personal goal, an objective, maybe you call it a dream? of doing this one thing. You really want to do that one thing, whatever it may be, but for some reason, you never succeeded in making it actually happen. Well, by showcasing successful achievers and asking them how they did it, I sincerely hope that this podcast will give you some ideas and maybe answers on where to start, how to proceed, in order to actually do that one thing that you really want to do. Hi, everyone. This is Cyril, and this is the I Really Want to Do This podcast. Welcome, everyone, and welcome to our guest today. Today, we're so lucky to have John. How are you doing, John? I am doing well. Great to be here. Really great. Oh, my friend, it's my pleasure. My pleasure. I think this podcast, I... I foresee it to be so rich in learnings. I actually, I've got your book that I've been reading and it's like a, a mine of treasure. So I hope to extract some of those through our conversation today. Let's start from the beginning. Uh, where, where are you right now? And um, what's, what's up with your life? Um, well, right now I'm in California. I'm uh, originally from the Boston, Massachusetts area. Moved mm -hmm. here about 10 years ago for a job. Uh, I retired in 2018 and trying to have lots and lots and lots of adventures. Unfortunately, uh, six weeks ago, I had a bad climbing accident, which I don't regret, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. but tore my ACL, LCL, and some other things. So I'm in the middle of a bit of a rehab, and uh, hopefully I'll be back climbing in another four to six weeks or so and be off the crutches by the end of next week. So uh, in general, life is good. You said you were living in the East Coast. Yes. It, Massachusetts is the hardest state to say as, as a French speaking Massachusetts. <laughs> I never know. Connecticut is the second one. Connecticut. I don't know how to say Connecticut. <laughs> but tell us, tell us where, where were you born? And, and uh, uh, get, let's get to know you in terms of family, environment and childhood. Sure. Um, where I grew up in Massachusetts, it's a little odd. It took five towns to get enough kids for a high school. I had three miles of woods behind me, two miles of woods behind, in front of me. So it was actually pretty remote, very farm centric. I was youngest of four kids. And um, were you the little we one? Treated like I was the little one. I was the little <laughs> unathletic, you know, nerdy, scientific one playing with my Apollo rockets and saturn five things and watching people go to the moon so very boy. very nerdy <laughs> sitting out with my telescope at night looking at jupiter and saturn and that stuff where were you mama's boy like oh my little one don't go off the nest <laughs> so you, you know you, you touch on the book thing because I, I i think your point is spot on that to understand how people set goals and things it's really important to understand some of their background stuff that might have motivated them along the way. And I always compare it to like a river and um, imagining you've got all these tributaries coming together, all these life experiences, cultural, genetic, um, environmental. And so first step is always understanding how those things have made you who you are. So in my family, it was actually a fairly difficult situation. Um, had a parent, my mother, who became a severe alcoholic. So I spent most of my childhood years about four or five years visiting my mother in alcohol rehab centers and basically after my parents got divorced i was raised by my father single father one of four kids and we were pretty much on our own starting at about 10 years old 
Um, but there was a very, very, very strong work ethic instilled in us. So by 10, 11 years old, you know, I was working farms. You ride your bike six or seven miles, go work in a farm field all day. Um, by 12 years old, you're washing dishes in a restaurant, riding home one o'clock in the morning wow. and trying to instill this, you know, take responsibility aspect for your life. Um, my, was that the personality of your dad? It was. My father was a uh, chemical engineer out of Columbia University, very smart guy, but he definitely had an attitude of, you know, this is a birthday present, but you're going to pay half for it. So starting at about 10, 12 years old, you had to pay half for everything. Uh, later on, that would come through in college. I had to work 40 hours a week nights in college to pay my half of college. Um, and it was always, you know, you're going to work. Um, yes. Nobody gave me anything. So it's I want merit, you to work. And Merit-based. Very merit-based and uh, take responsibility for your life. And farming communities in general teach that this strong work ethic, you know, the fields aren't going to plant themselves. Um, and you reap what you sow, uh, very literally and metaphorically as well. Um, I have a very good relationship with my brothers and sisters, um, which were great. Uh, again, I was the youngest of four. So I was always a tiny one. I was a sophomore in high school and I still hadn't broken five feet tall, still hadn't broken a hundred pounds. Um, really unathletic, just tiny, nerdy little kid. Mm -hmm. um, so and let me go back to the uh, the way you were raised. So mostly by your dad. Um, yeah. Um, what do you think of it? Do you think it was right? So for him to to raise you that way, and did you reproduce that with your own kids, or did you think maybe another way could have been better? So I'm sure another way could have been better, but. I take a much longer term perspective on things, multi-generational perspective. Mm. So for example, my father's father left him. He was born out of wedlock. So in Wait, that sense, um, he, his father, he, my grandmother got pregnant with somebody's baby and then okay. the father took off. Okay. She later married someone and they adopted my father. So in that sense, that's the worst situation, right? Yeah. The father just yeah. takes off. My father stayed around, um, made sure we had food, clothing. We did get to go to college, but there was never any sense of loving the child. There was never, right. when, my whole life, my father never once told me he was proud of me. Uh, only once on his deathbed did he say, well, you know, I love you guys. So to me, that's an unacceptable aspect of being a parent. But I don't think you really understand how you were raised until you're raising your own children. Right. So these are all things that I took note of and absolutely my proudest achievement in life is my two kids, my son, 32, my daughter, 30, who I just adore. And we are super close. You know, our passion is rock climbing. We've been rock climbing together since they were five and six years old. We've mm -hmm. traveled the world together. I've climbed in the Alps, uh, Chamonix with my daughter Mont Blanc, things like that. You know, I've climbed big walls in Yosemite with my son and that relationship with my kids. And yet I can already see my son is going to have an even better relationship mm -hmm. with his kids. And so again, this perspective of it's getting a little better with each generation right. and that's okay. It doesn't have to all get solved in one thing. And, you know, I'll come back to that topic later when we talk about goals this idea of incrementalism. You don't have to solve all the world's problems in one fell swoop. So mm -hmm. long as you're making some form of progress, then that's okay. You're making progress. You know? mm. Every effect is going to have an, its effect. Every yes. cause will have an effect, whether it's short-term or long-term. Yes. So you have to believe in the process of uh, cause and reaction because there's usually a reaction to a cause could be that's really interesting you applied that in other parts of your life <laughs> i apply that all over my life and i apply that on the world basis you know there's a um a great book right now out called factfulness and one of the wonderful things about this is in this society everybody wants to say how horrible everything is 
and he goes through with all the World Health Organization and international monetary funds. And my daughter's company actually had made this required reading, a Geneva-based company that does uh, research publications. And when you actually look at the numbers, there's incredible cause for good hope in fields like the quality of water, people who are living in um, extreme poverty is going radically down, uh, deaths of um, child deaths, um, education levels, a uh, number of people who have electricity. And when you actually look at how all these things have happened, even air quality, I know we have to worry about the climate, that's fair. But even air quality, if you used, when you grew up like I did in the 60s and 70s, it was like, you're not even going to be able to breathe the air. It's not like 30 years from now, this is going to be a problem. You're going to die tomorrow because the air quality in LA and the smog is going to be so bad. So when you actually look at all the graphics that they go through, it gives you pause to say, again, we're not solving it all in one step, but there's a trend. There's a distinctly improving trend. Um, number of people who die from natural disasters, number of people who die in wars, um, number of people who die in plagues. Even yeah. with COVID, it's tr- yeah. tiny compared to the Black Plague or losing 20 to 30% right. of the population. So tell me, here's what I want to know from you. Um, in my own life, I've seen that the struggles are the ones that are um, helping me learn and be better, whatever, whatever it is, much mm-hmm. faster than the good, good uh, things. Um, let's put it another way. Like every time you struggle, you learn so much faster and it's, it could be a good, right? Have you had any of these struggles? And you started by saying like your mom was an alcoholic. I'm sure you you had to raise to the bar to take yourself, you know, like up to your life. Do you see that too? Like the um, the struggles are positive, and then we'll tr- carry on to you and I are uh, we're both endurance adventure seekers, and we kind of seek that struggle because we have a good <laughs> reward. I'll let you answer. Um, yeah. So I mean, in terms of struggles, single parent, alcoholic parent, I have a form of dyslexia. As I said, I didn't even break five feet on athletic up through sophomore in high school one of four children, a parent who never even said he loved me, Mm -hmm. right? So those are like all, I have a genetic, our whole family would have a genetic propensity for alcoholism. So there's a lot of things that, you know, nothing got given to me. I, like I said, I had to pay half for my birthday presents, but I don't use those struggles as an excuse. And there was a very distinct point in my life when I was a sophomore in high school. So I was actually very young for my grade. I was 15 years old and I had tried a little bit of drinking and stuff like that at 15. And I suddenly decided, no, I don't want to do this. I want to become an athlete. And at 15, my brother, Paul actually got a set of weights. And I said, I'm going to go lift weights every day now. And over the next nine months, I put on 65 pounds, grew nine, 10 inches, hit my growth spurt right when I was doing this. And I became an athlete. I, when I was just gymnast, I was a ring specialist in gymnastics. I went to track. I was a 440 and pole vaulter, but it was a very conscious decision on that Christmas. Mm-hmm. I said, nope, I'm going to start to take control of my life and I'm going to send it here. And I think that's the very first time I ever set a really kind of life altering. I was just going to take myself in a different direction. Yeah. Was that the reaction to you think your family set up? Like you didn't have that control. Yeah. You were tired of being in, in giving the, your control to somebody else who didn't have control of their own lives. Mm. So you took your own in your own hands. Was that, was that it? Uh, that's part of it. But part of it was just, um, you know, I started at about 12 years old, becoming very interested in philosophies and religions um, along the way, I, yeah. I'll come back to this as a goal. There's starting no at, at 12 years I'm, old, why was I doing? <laughs> at 12 years old, I started meditating every day. And there was a show on TV that had a big influence on me called Kung Fu. Mm-hmm. And it was about a Shaolin monk and, um, you know, learning about Taoism and Eastern religions. And somehow that seemed like trying to become a better possible you. 
and had a really, really huge influence on me, the whole aspects of Taoism, Zen, Buddhism. Um, I'm going to ramble off a bit here is um, this concept of incrementalism that it's okay to do small things, do things in little increments. Um, so for me, I started reading the world's great religions and philosophical books. And at this point, I think I've read every major religious text in the world and almost every major philosopher. That's from the Mahabharata, the Ramayana, Confucius's Analects, Menachus, Lao Tzu, Sun Tzu, the Quran. And my point with it was when people are thinking about goals, do small steps. So for me, it was two pages a day. And you think, you know, two pages, it's going to take me forever to get through the Bible if I do two yeah. pages a day. But I have also been booked through books on string theory that way and books on um, history and all sorts of things. But if it actually adds up, if you're just persistent, two pages a day is at least 700 pages a year. And if you do that for 10 years, now you're up to 7,000 pages. And I'm not talking about your regular entertainment reading. I'm talking about something that you feel makes you a better person, helps you learn. And this concept that you don't have to sit down and read the Quran cover to cover. You can just read two pages, right? Or I have some friends who are very involved in string theory, just two pages. There's always time for two pages. Um, and so these persistent things of I've meditated every day of my life since I was 12, uh, reading two pages of something intellectually interesting or spiritually interesting every day of my life. Um, these little tiny steps that people can make as opposed to thinking the goals have to be so huge. And so that was a huge lesson for me that you can take these things and, and things add up. They really yeah. do. Yeah. And that, that compared to nowadays society where we want a return on, on investment, everything has to have a return. So it has to be fast and quick. So if I want yeah. to learn language, I want to try to find a method that's going to give it to me in two months and, you know, they'll sell you like, you'll know Spanish in two weeks if you do that. Yes. Like, yeah. so that's it. I mean, you have to go back to that consistent work a little bit every day and not stop. Yes. Uh, and also and not being afraid by the whole task. Because if you give me all those books you just mentioned on my table in one spot, I'm going to be like, no, there's no way. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> don't look at the big task. It's like how to eat an elephant, you know, one bite at a time. That's right. That's right. And uh, again, if you break it into little tiny increments, I, I have this one that I really love about whenever I go for a hike with somebody, you have to pick up one piece of trash. You don't have to pick up a hundred. You don't have to bring out a whole bag. But if you just pick up one piece and you get these rules that you say, if everybody did what I'm proposing, how would the world be? Mm. Whatever that behavior is. So if everybody picked up one piece of trash, imagine... And again, it's, it's so small. Yeah, I know. But I know. if everybody does it, the world winds up wonderfully, right? You know, I, I, I give blood like once a year, or I work at a food bank once a year, or I've coached soccer. I, you don't have to do it all. You don't have to do it for 10 years. You just have to, you know, once every other year or so give blood. If everybody does that, we're all set. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's all I it takes. It. I love it. Wow. So when you were like 12, 15, you decided on a set of things you would do, like work out every day. And what else did you add to your daily practice? Meditation and what else? You, like you started working, you say, okay, this is my, what my routine. So I'm trying to, what the point I'm trying to get is it kind of created from a de decision, it created a pattern of uh, decision making for everything. And and a, be, uh, a behavior that is consistent with everything, right? It is. And I think the pattern that really began, and I don't know, maybe it's because if your mother leaves you, you feel like you better take responsibility for yourself because maybe nobody else is going to do it. So you find these things with athletically saying, I have to take responsibility. I can't wait to be coached. I'm, I'm just going to go down in the basement and do this myself or um, jobs, you know, that's really when I started working. If I need money to go do anything, I've got to earn it. It's not just going to magically show up on my door. So there's this moment of saying, I'm going to take responsibility for my life. Uh, Frederick Nietzsche is huge on this, his book, uh, Will to Power. That's the whole key is when do we take responsibility for our life? And 
you could look at it to some degree as people being selfish, you know, but really developing you to be the best possible you, if everybody does that, the mm-hmm. world's a better place. It really mm-hmm. is. Um, you know, you'll be as educated mm-hmm. and you'll be as fit and you'll be as healthy. You'll sleep better. You'll have loving relationships. It's just mm-hmm. a better world. I agree. It's, it's so key for somebody to understand that in their lives. I see different people. Some kids can get it so early, like at 12. I want to cook. They start to cook. My little neighbor is like this. You'll do that. Like, it's amazing. Now, if you realize at 15 or 20 or 30 or 50, that fact, the later you do, the less you'll achieve. Because if always you rely on somebody else, you know, I, I think the key to achievement is actually self-achievement. It's like deciding what you want to do and do it because nobody can motivate you for what you want to do. Right. I can't agree more with this. And it's actually one of my frustrations with a lot of the current generation in that they were overcoached. So you have a kid who's 15 years old. I had a friend, they were paying $250 a month for their kids psychological tennis coach. So they're being coached from 10 different angles, right? And they're being motivated from 10 different angles. Mm. But the kid never has the internal motivation. And the moment the coaches go away, say in college or after college, the motivation goes away, right? They're not used to getting themselves to the gym on their self. They're not used to setting a goal on their own. They're so used to being programmed by parents or coaches or whoever, the school, that they never say, wait a second. Um, one of the things I, I, I do a lot of is through hiking. So I'm hiking. One of my goals currently working on is hiking from the length of California on the Pacific crest trail. I've done 1200 miles of this. And one of the beautiful things about it, it's the same thing in the rock climbing. I do the trail doesn't care what your excuses are. If you're out in the middle of nowhere, 20 (laughs) miles from the nearest land and you of all people would understand the ocean doesn't necessarily, you may love the ocean, but in a way, the ocean doesn't really care if you're having problems, right? (laughs) And so you have this moment when you're alone, away from everybody. And, you know, I was doing some sections in SoCal and it's like, okay, if I get bit by a rattlesnake now, I'm on my own because I'm solo hiking some of these sections. And it's that moment when you accept that and say, I'm going to do all the things I should logically. I'm going to have the right equipment. I've trained and I've done all that. Mm-hmm. And yet I still accept I'm responsible for myself and take that responsibility. Mm-hmm. I love it. Going back to the, the parents, uh, you know, the, they call them helicopter parents that are so mm-hmm. on top of the kids now. Yes. I don't think they do it on purpose, though. That's the. the no, reason. no, no. It's out of love. It's great. They intent. do it the best, but they, they just don't know. Like, it's it's uh, like they might want their kids to be healthy, but they don't cook at home themselves. And they're unhealthy themselves. So they can't really teach somebody how to behave if they don't do it themselves, you know? And oh, again, it's out of love. I'm going to give you the best violin teacher. Well, the guy doesn't want to do violin. Sorry. <laughs> but, you know. <laughs> So how do, you, how do you teach that? And I mean, there's no answer to teaching the whole world how to be parents, but like, how do you teach a kid to find its own passion? And that's what I want to do with this podcast. People tell me, I don't know what my passion is. What do you know? You don't know. What do you want to do if you have nothing to do? Like, So it's funny because I used to ask people in the job interviews when I was interviewing people, I say, what are you most passionate about? And it doesn't really matter what the answer is. It could be kayaking. It could be climbing. It could be baseball. I I don't care. It doesn't matter. But they have to be passionate about something. If they're not passionate about anything, that's kind of a trigger for me. They're not going to be passionate about work. If they can't find things in life and they just like, you know, I just go home and sit on the couch and that's good. You know, my passion is just sitting on the couch on Sunday and watching football for eight hours. Okay, this doesn't make you a bad person, but there's so much more living out there that's possible. And I I assume you know um, Plato's allegory of the cave? Yes, yeah. You know, it's like that. You're trying to describe to people, there's a whole world if you'll just turn around and go outside, there's a lot more to life than just these shadows. And you want to shake them and say, this could be so exciting. So. 
back to your question about the parents, how do you instill it? I think first, number one, you role model it. So if the kid sees the parent always making excuses. Secondly, I think exposing kids to lots of things early on in life is critical so that they can find their passion because it's going to be different with my own kids who now are passionate about climbing. It was the last thing I got them involved with. I did not want my kids to have to rock climb. I coached their soccer. I coached their t-ball. I coached their track teams. And they were horrible at all those things, absolutely horrible. And it was only when they started climbing, their first year climbing, my son made it to number 11 in the country for his age group. And he was like, wow, I'm just naturally good at something. Mm. And you never had to talk him into going to practice. So it was always, oh, we're going to go see our friends and we're going to go have fun and we're going to do this really cool thing. Mm. Um, mm. And you're looking for that moment that look, expose them to lots of things and find out when their eyes light up. Yes. And then support them. I agree. I agree to expose them to a lot of things. And I would, what I would say is I've learned a lot by when I was a kid by staying at my cousin's home for the mm. part of the summer or friend's home, even for a birthday party. Like you see the dynamic of the family, the different family, how the, the father behaves, how the mother behaves. Like you're just open to different filters and you take that exponentially and you travel overseas for an extended period of time. I think it should be mandatory for kids to live overseas because then they have a different way of seeing life. Like you live in Togo for six months, you live in Argentina for six months, you live in Germany and in Singapore for six months, that's two years. Wow, your world is different, my friend. <laughs> I, I couldn't agree enough anymore. And you know, when my kids were growing up, it's one of the things we tried to encourage. So when everybody else was going off in high school and school breaks, they were going to do Habitat for Humanity, going around the country, helping to build homes for poor people, um, but also getting them into Europe and getting them around France and climbing at Fontainebleau and places like that so that they had a sense of this is all open to me. And it worked out wonderfully. Like with my son, my son spent six months in Tanzania, you know, teaching entrepreneurship skills in Tanzania. Mm. He did work in Haiti and the Philippines. Um, I think he's traveled to 30 different countries, but your, your point is right. Especially in the United States, we have, I think only about 40% of Americans, and I don't quote me exactly on that, only 40% of Americans have a passport, let alone have they ever been out of the country. So there's this very or out American of the point of view. And I worked in Paris for a summer in the 80s, spent a lot of time in Spain and Germany. Mm-hmm. And it really changes your perspective, exactly like you're saying. And you realize the US isn't the all end all and the way we do things isn't the be all end all go to india and understand how family relationships work there the energy of the street i have a lot of indian friends who come here and they say you're also isolated from each other everybody you know mm-hmm. goes apart from each other there's no energy there's no yeah and it's not that one's right or wrong it's just there are different ways to look at things yeah and uh exposing your kids to as much of that as possible so they have this broad worldview opens up enormous possibilities to them. Mm-hmm. I love it. And then you said, see where, when their eyes get lit up. Yes. Uh, that leads me to the second part of the podcast, which is when was the first time that your eyes lit up? Well, they, so when was the first time you, 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 you thought about, I really won't do this? no matter what it is. And I agree with you. I think people that are motivated, it doesn't matter. You want to take pictures of butterflies around the world. I love it. doesn't matter. Right. So tell me, tell us about your, I really want to do it this moment. And what was it? Um, I'll describe one from a climbing perspective. And I had been rock climbing since I was 15. And there are certain things that just seemed too big, only like Olympic athletes or somebody could do these things. And mm-hmm. for me, that unattainable goal was something called Half Dome in Yosemite, very mm-hmm. famous pictures of it. I'm sure you've seen pictures of Half Dome and, and there's a bunch of Ansel Adams pictures of it, like moon over Half Dome. And it's this huge face. It's, um, oh, I don't know, three, 4,000 feet um, high. 
And it's not something you can climb in a day. You climb it over multiple days. And it, it always stood out there. Every time I saw one of these Ansel Adams pictures, it would just give me shivers mm. of how could anybody ever do that, this unattainable thing. And that was one that stuck with me for a really long time of someday, someday, someday I want to do this. And that'll be like the culmination. That'll be like, then I know I've really become a climber when I can do that. And it's such a classic route. And I did actually wind up, it took a couple of tries. The first time we were going to do it, one of my friends had to bail and we, he didn't even get to Yosemite with me. But then another time, uh, my friend Steve and Alexei, I planned the whole trip. We got it all done. And we spent three days climbing the face of Half Dome. And um, I learned what suffering is. We climbed three days, including a 10-mile approach hike and descent on three liters of water. Oh, wow. And you think, <laughs> people think they know, people think they know what being thirsty is, but you really don't. Yeah. And, you know, it took us longer than we thought and we ran out of water and you're hauling. And if you're climbing with water, water's really heavy. Yeah. And um, three yeah. liters per person yeah. for three make people. Water. Yeah. You can't make water. <laughs> um, so that really stretched me. But it was one of those things that, you know, you looked at it and you were just drawn to it. The picture of it, the beauty of it. Okay. Uh, the motion okay. may be the same for you. All right, let, let's go to your method. Once you you started to see that picture and then probably read books about people who have done it and see some videos and it, it kind of boiled, like, did you feel it? It was in an intellectual excitement or was it like a emotional? It was it like physical where you say, and so how did you feel that it was getting born into yourself? And then the moment you decided, okay, I'm going to do this. What was your method to make it? So I'm going to slightly digress here um, to the, the, my book, Best Use of a Lifetime, because at the time I didn't realize how much I was applying what ultimately the framework I was going to use there was. And I, I say the same framework to everyone. And it doesn't matter if you're picking a job. doesn't matter if you're climbing half dome. It's the same things. First step to making any choice in life, any goal, setting any goal, is just to where you started with the interview. Understand, hey, how did you get here as a person? What's what's motivating you? Are you is it healthy motivation? You know, are you trying to impress somebody or you know? So understand that motivation. And then the second aspect is always logic-based reasoning. So for a climb, you're looking at it as do I have the skills? So we have ratings of climbing difficulty. Right. You know, have I shown that I can do that level of climb? Do I have lots of experience at it? Do um, It's also things like, do I have the right gear? Do I have the right weather? Do I have the right partners? It's a very logic-based way to look at things. And I went through that whole process. And I do, I continue to use that same process for every major goal in life. So there's a logic base. But then the third step is intent and inner voice. So Logic is one thing, and yes, you're capable of doing it or you're not, but you know, I think it's uh, Immanuel Kant who has the phrase, there's nothing good in the world, entirely good in itself, except good intent. So doing the right thing for the wrong reasons, um, whether you could be giving money to a charity, but you're doing it just to get your own ego inflated. Same thing with a client. You know, I'm doing this just to impress people. And I don't think that's a particularly good reason. So you have to examine why am I doing this? What is my heart telling me? And yeah. in my case, I knew nobody was really going to care if I climbed this. You know, most people don't understand what it is. But also, I knew when I looked at that picture, something about it just drew me to it. The beauty of it, the, the position of it. There was something calling me. And that's just an inner voice thing. And then the fourth step that a lot of people ignore when they set these goals and make these choices is taking action. Um, mm -hmm. And that's all the logical stuff. That's, did I do the training? Um, do I have, am I well rested? Um, you know, do I, do I get a good sleep? There's all these things. Uh, and <laughs> good side track a little bit here. When I ice climb, there's a moment you have your two picks in, right? Mm. And you're going to take one pick out and place it higher. 
right? You're going up a 400 foot vertical ice. At the moment you take the one pick out and place it higher, everything in life hangs by a half inch of metal on the pick that's still in. Because your feet aren't going to stay in if the left hand, say, comes out in this case. And it's the same thing with these life choices. At the moment you've made the decision, you've done the logical research, you've got the right intent, it's time to kind of shut up and climb, right? You have to have confidence that the tool you placed or the work you did to get yourself here is good enough, or at least you understand the risk. Uh, It may not be perfect because there's no guarantees, but you understand the risk and it's time to stop second guessing. And I'd I'd say that to anybody who's setting a goal there's a point when you've done your homework, you're doing it for the right reasons, and now it's about execution and not second guessing. It's about time to do it, right? Because the second guessing will exhaust you. It'll drain your energy. Um, Marcus Aurelius, uh, one of my favorite Stoic philosophers, has this great quote about, if you actually think about this very moment, what you have to worry about, 99% of the time, it's nothing right? There is those moments you're in a storm in the sea and the waves are coming over. Okay. That's a fair time or there's rock fall on the cliff and that's time. But most of the time it's in the general process. And so stop exhausting yourself with the worry and trust that you did the other steps properly. Wow. I mean, <laughs> that's a lot of information. I need to see it. When you start the first point, I'm like, wow, this is awesome. I don't even know if I've done that yet. Like what are my own motivation? Like the the introspect, yeah. Uh, going through those five steps is like so amazing, and I think everybody has to do that at some point. But uh, the the issue that I see is that usually you have the motivation, you don't know where it comes from, and you just try to act without doing those steps, and then it eventually fails because you're like you don't have the all the tools to say like it's not your intent is not structured. You know, it's just, yes. uh, hmm. you haven't laid a good foundation. You don't have confidence in that foundation. So in my ice climbing example, what happens is people are going to place the next ice tool, right? And because they don't have confidence in the other one that's lower down here, they don't place the one above it. So they're building bad on top of bad. They're building sand structures on top of sand structures. And what I'm saying is, no, you need to have confidence that before you build on this layer, before you build on this step, um, that you've done the homework, let's say a job, for example, you wanna become, I was a chief information officer, uh, head of IT in a company. Um, Should I have taken that job when I was 22? Of course not. I didn't have the layers of experience necessary, just like you, I'm sure. Um, I get this question from people in climbing. They say, I wanna climb Everest. What do I need to do to climb Everest? I say, well, here's, I can give you eight mountains that you should climb that will prepare you for that and give you the confidence to know I can do Everest now. And I can start you at a local hill here in Marin County. Right. Yeah. And I can take you in eight steps to Everest. And sometimes the same thing in a career. You know, I can say, here's the eight steps you need to go through to get there. Yeah. And again, you said earlier, people just want to rush and be there. And I'm saying, you have the confidence to be there and not second guess yourself by having done the work, you know, the intermediate steps to get there. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. I mean, you wouldn't do your ocean crossing as your first adventure, right? Yeah. Of course you're going to. But the thing is, I didn't even think I, it was a goal. Like I woke up and there's a race this weekend. It's a 12 mile race. I did this. And then I built on top of this. Oh, I'm good. There's a 24 mile there's a yes. 30 miles and I built on top of it. So it came in incrementally, but you told me 10 years ago when I started paddling that I was going to cross solo the ocean is like, no way, man. <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know? <laughs> so I'm going to sidetrack just slightly because I think this is an incredibly useful point for me personally, who you surround yourself with can be enormously beneficial mm. and kind of putting your goal out there. So when I ran my first marathon, 1983, um, you know, I told a handful of my friends, oh, I'm going to do this thing. And there are days when you're training, and I'm sure you might have these, when I don't want to train, or maybe I won't do this goal. I'll just stop, stop. But now you've told these 10 friends, and people are asking you about it at work. And yeah. it creates this inertia of 
I've kind of let the world know I'm going to do this. Mm-hmm. And it can be a very, very positive thing, you know, and maybe even better have a training partner, you know, somebody who's doing the goal with you, but just don't keep the seek, don't keep your goal a secret, you know, share it with people who love and will support you and help you through those moments when I just don't want to train for this. I just don't want to take on this goal anymore mm-hmm. um, and help you with that, you know, motivation. Yeah, I agree. I always say you're the average of the five people that you spend the most time with. Yeah, those people will help you when you're you feel not motivated. So now, on a personal basis, I'm 68 days away from my my potential depart departure. I say potential because it could move a little bit, but I'm departing. But right now, I'm a little bit of a mental block where I'm doing my homework physically, and I feel strong physically, but mentally there's a little block, and I need to spend more time on the water. And the other day. My friend Denis and, and my girlfriend had an inter- intervention on me, and they said, "You need to spend more time on your boat." Yeah, it's okay. You know, I've I've been cycling four hours a day. No, no, no. You're not cycling across the ocean. You're paddling across the ocean. So <laughs> I did. You know, I didn't like it because it, they were right. <laughs> so Sunday I went spend five hours. Yesterday I did two hours, and today I'm yeah. going to do another hours. I might go cycling actually today. <laughs> but, there you go. <laughs> but. Um, Yeah, it's it's important to 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 surround yourself with with positive people and and that push you not too much but the right amount. Mm-hmm. Perfect amount. Yes. Did you have a uh, a mentor in in through that? Like somebody you look up to that was here for you, a friend or yeah. Um, I've had different types of mentors. Um, my First, probably mentor was a guy named Ken Mamoni in high school, and I took a course on Eastern uh, literature, and he's the one who kind of first, in a structured way, exposed me to what Zen is and Buddhism and um, Taoism and things like that. Uh, very influential. I a bunch of climbing mentors. I had two guys that I can't say enough about. One was a rocket scientist out of MIT, uh, aeronautical engineer out of MIT, and the other was a corporate tax lawyer. And the three of us really grew together for 10 years, every weekend for 10 years, basically, we were out either on rock or ice climbing. And so it's, um, I'm not sure it's mentoring that they were so much better as much as we grew together. And that, that, having people that you, I don't know if this happens in kayaking, but in climbing, you're very emotionally exposed. You're terrified. You think you're going to die, right? You're suffering. Like I said, on half dome, three liters of water for three days, you are really emotionally raw. Mm -hmm. And it's not the same as going out and playing golf with someone. So the relationships you form with people are different than, um, again, somebody who you might just play golf with. And so finding those people, they may not even be a mentor, But there are people who know you at your absolute core. I, I, I think it was um, Aristotle who said, it's only through the greatest hardships that the greatest virtues develop. Yeah. And it goes back says, to what I said earlier at the beginning of What's the that? Goes yeah. back to what I said. <laughs> well, he didn't know about alpinism. He says it's probably through war that the greatest relationships, the greatest friendships and bonds form. But he didn't know about crossing oceans in a kayak or climbing Everest or things like that. But there's something about suffering with people. They always say, you know, you run a marathon with someone and they'll be your friend for life, um, which is kind of interesting. I agree. So let's go to, um, uh, I'm just thinking about this now. I didn't want to ask you this, but I'm going to. Uh, this war in Ukraine is so hard for me because I feel, I feel the pain of the people of Ukraine having to fight and So I'm talking a lot to my friends around me. And one of them, sa- them said something that could be relevant that is a little bit to what we were talking about. He said, yeah, they're going through a really hardship. France did that, a Second World War. And us Americans, we had to go through independence. We had to go through our own struggles. And even though it is horrible, you could see maybe the Ukrainian spirit being defined at this very moment as a nation, which was... Uh, 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 concept maybe before, but that is now true and is going to be true for the next 300 years because of what's happening. So it's the heart that is creating something bad, uh, good. 
And I have a so hard time. We have like, I want, how can we help them? It's okay to see the good and the bad, but to, to me, there's only ba bad coming through this. You know what I mean? It's so, such a hard feeling. So one of the things I always encourage my kids is try to understand both sides of an argument. Uh, clearly, I, I, I think Putin's doing a horrible thing and this is atrocious and just absolutely horrible. Just, there's no question about that. But sometimes I look and I say, okay, be a, someone who understands history. There's a great Netflix series on World War II and they bite, bring it down to some very nice episodes. And for example, the siege of Stalingrad. And what's happening in Ukraine is horrible. But then you look at Stalingrad, you look at the tens of thousands, I think something like 200,000 who died there. And um, you look at Russian losses in World War II, I think 10 to 20 million people died in, in there. The United States, we lost about 250,000 or so. From their perspective, they can be looking at it and saying, we're getting surrounded by all of these countries and, and Germany already tried to take us over you know, during World War II. So they play on that paranoia. And that's why they use these, you know, horrible phrases like neo-Nazis. You know, the Germans are going to try and take Moscow again. So we have to defend ourselves and we have to go on the offensive. Again, I clearly do not agree with what they're doing. It's horrible. But you can see how they twist history mm. to their advantage and, and remind people of those things. And that's what they were, are told in their propaganda. Mm. Um, I don't know how to solve that. Well, my hope is this though. My hope is that as the, the Russian soldiers are in Ukraine, then they get access to more information. So in other words, they get to see, oh, wait a mm. second, the whole world's kind of against us. Yeah. And we are killing women and children and we're bombing maternity things. And that freedom of information that they'll be exposed to, because Russia can't control that information as, as well once they're in Ukraine. And my hope is, hope, 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 is that they'll start to basically just say, I'm just not going to fight this war. And I, I know, I think that's one of the reasons, personally, I think that's one of the reasons why they're using long range weapons, because they know when the Russian soldiers try to go in and take it house street by street, they're just throwing up their hands and saying, I'm not going to do this. Mm -hmm. they, they can't talk them into it when they, when the, right. when they finally realize the horror of what they're doing. Mm -hmm. um, but to your point also, you know, the old phrase forged in fire, it is through the greatest hardships. And this is obviously a huge hardship on those people. And I totally agree with you. It'll form their identity and their sense of security and their need for security for mm -hmm. decades or a hundred years to come. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks for your, your perspective <laughs> on this. I really appreciate it. Let's go back to a lighter subject and okay. your half dome. Did you do it? Did you climb all the way? I did. Um, and I got to tell you, it really, really stretched me emotionally. And I have such memories, you know, you're sleeping on these tiny little ledges. Imagine sleeping on a chair tilted at an angle no, and you're hanging in a harness, <laughs> you know, a thousand feet up and it's cold and you don't have water. And it, it's just a level of suffering that you can't possibly imagine. And, um, I, and you may have the same thing. So we get to the top and we get back down to the 10 mile hike down back to Yosemite Valley. And I called home and, um, I just started crying. Mm. You know, I was, it's like, okay, I'm allowed to let my emotions go now because mm. you have to stay so in control the rest of the time. You can't, you know, break down. But I said, okay, now I'm allowed to. And uh, I just let it release. And it was a wonderful experience. It's just this very cathartic, wonderful. Yeah, you know, it's beautiful. Okay. I always explain it this way. You know, everybody um, lives a, through a loss at some point in their life. Somebody else mm. died. And then you feel this, this ball in your, your throat mm. and chest is, is compressed. And then you can't, you know, and, and you're crying of, of sadness. It's an, the overwhelm emotion, but in this case, negative. Once you achieve something that you've wanted for many years and you had to struggle over it, you have this overwhelm 
you see it in the Olympians and all these people that cross ocean, climb mountains. You get there, and it, but it's an it's a it's a tightness of the chest, and the but it's positive. It's like I feel like in some ways you feel so alive, isn't it? <laughs> and, and then you're like, I want to feel this again. <laughs> and it's funny because you know I've had that many times, especially in climbing, and you're out like minus 40 degree Fahrenheit temperature and you're climbing on a 600 feet up on a wall and you feel like you're suddenly awake and you suddenly say, this is what it is to actually be alive. There's a, a, a great Nietzsche quote about um, people confuse happiness with sleep. And what he means is most people try to numb themselves out. They sit on a deck chair on a cruise ship with somebody handing them drinks. And they think that's happiness, this kind of numb yes, thing. Yes, the lack of pain. Lack of pain. And, um, and it's not. There's, you, you know, there's, you can have so much more joy than that. You can have such a deeper experience. And you can have deeper pain, too. But it, I don't know. There's a great quote by um, Henry David Thoreau about he goes off and he lives by himself in the woods in Concord, Massachusetts. And he says, I went to the woods to live purposefully. And if life was mean, well, then to feel the full meanness of it, not when I die, have been cheated. Mm-hmm. Um, but basically, whatever it is, good or bad, I want to feel it entirely. And I want to take it face on and head on and mm-hmm. full on experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love it what uh once you reached that goal did, did you could you share it with friends do you think they could understand your what you felt or did you not need to um <laughs> a handful of people you can share it with your climbing friends but you know there's a, a an interesting quote about a perfect pearl a perfect pearl doesn't need to say anything. People who understand pearls will, yeah. will know it's a perfect pearl. And if you don't understand pearls, I could try to explain it to you for a lifetime and you still wouldn't explain what it is. So it, it's got to be one of those things where the other person has been through something similar and can grasp what you're talking about. Yeah. And then they'll get it with the slightest gesture or the mm-hmm. slightest comment. Like, yes, this was type three fun. Um, Yes. This was full on type three five. <laughs> and that's all it takes. All right. Before we go to conclusion, I want to ask you one more question. You seem to be so in control with those five steps process. And this is how I'm going to do plan everything. Tell me about something that didn't go as planned and like, Oh, I screwed up there or, Oh, you know, <laughs> shit. My method doesn't work on this. <laughs> Come on, come back to being human, John. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, one of my mistakes in life is I didn't fail enough. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is there's an old phrase, a man's reach should exceed his grasp. So to me, I should have set some higher goals. I achieved basically every major goal I ever wanted in life. Mm -hmm. And that means I probably didn't set, I shouldn't have achieved 10% of them. 10% 10% should have been just out of reach, right? So that most of the time I can achieve them and that's rewarding and you feel like you're growing, but you shouldn't achieve everything because then you probably didn't try hard enough. Mm-hmm. So I encourage people to um, don't be afraid to fail 10% of the time. That's really is where you learn. And um, it's, it's an incredibly important part. You know, in my book, I talk about my son failing at a climbing competition and that's what turned him to become no, I'm actually now going to dedicate myself. That was a turning point in his life when he said, I'm going to take responsibility. Um, And the other thing is, so when I fail, even using the five steps, I always tell people, there's no guarantees in life. Stop expecting guarantees. All you can do is make purposeful choices and understand the probabilities. So my climbing, I'm sitting here, you talk about a failure. I shouldn't have, if I had logically gone through my steps exactly right, I was probably going to be okay on my last climb. It was the last climb of the day. And, you know, I should have been more conscious, but I took a risk and I'll deal with the consequences of it. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I, I didn't in that particular one, it didn't work out, but, um, the key is to always make conscious choices, purposeful choices and understand it. And then if you want to take the risk, knowing the risk, mm-hmm. at least you can't get mad at yourself because you knew what you were doing yeah. and you took responsibility. Yeah. You only regret the things you didn't do, or in your case, you should have done more. And it's okay if you fail. Okay, let's do more. And <laughs> I have a plate full. But here's the next thing what we do. We need to help people. And that's part of the, what I want to do this podcast. People um, need to understand that they have it in them to do more. Right? And please, uh, John, I know you probably do that already with your kids, but and or, or people around you. I think you have an amazing energy. And you could contagiate people like with, with that method so that people do, you know, more things around you. So. Yeah. And remember you can start small. I, I don't let the size of the goal. Like I said, pick up one piece of trash, read two pages, you know, eat one healthier meal, just one tiny little thing. Yeah. And consistency. And consistency. If you had um, one conclusion for our listeners, like one takeaway that they have to remember during this podcast, one thing you want them to remember, what, what would you say? My five-step framework, I can boil down to one sentence. And this is for any choice in life. Mm. The best use of a lifetime is to take committed action, purposeful choices that are well-reasoned and incorporate both good intent and your inner voice. Everything you need to know is in that well-reasoned, good intent, committed action. Those are the things you need. And if you can just go through that sentence using logic, a good heart, mm. full-on effort, that- It says it all. Yeah, it yeah. says it all. Um, and there's one other quote I'm just going to give you that I, I always love this quote about people who- Give me all the reasons why they can't. It's from a book by Richard Bach. He says, argue for your limitations and they're yours. Yeah. So people who give me 20 reasons why, oh, I can't do that. I can't do that. I can't do that. Fine. You win. Yeah. If you're going to argue 20 reasons why, you win. Yeah. There's another one I like There's so much. This is whether you think you can or can't, you're right. Yes. <laughs> yes. I've heard this. Fantastic. Okay, the reveal of the song. I'm asking my guests to listen to a song that they, they like in different ways, either motivate them, make, give them peace, uh, just to have good energies for the podcast. And this one worked because I felt it through the podcast. Can you tell us what th- song did you decide to listen to? Um, I don't know if you would know this song, Do It Again by the Beach Boys. I don't think I, if I listen to it, maybe I'll, I'll know it, but I'm not very good. Just an upbeat and do it again. I love it. Yeah. And okay. Where can people follow you? Where can they buy your book? And uh, they're happy you. to buy my book. It's out in hardcover and softcover now um, on Amazon. And um, uh, it's an ebook also. And if you want to just follow my adventures. Um, so the title I, of the book is? The Best Use of a Lifetime, okay. um, John Georgevitz. It's in 20 languages? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, we haven't quite gotten it to Cantonese yet. Um, <laughs> but uh, feel free to friend me on Facebook or uh, follow Adventures on Instagram. Whenever I kind of go off and do a big thing, like uh, you know, I did a great trip with my daughter in Chamonix two years ago, climbing some big fun stuff with like to post a bunch of pictures and things up there and it's just a fun community of people doing things that put a smile on and stretch them a little bit okay and your your name is john how'd they find uh, you john yeah georgevitz g-e-o-r-g-e-v as in victor i t as in tom s as in sam and the nice thing is there's no other john georgevitz is pretty much in the country so it makes it really <laughs> easy to find me <laughs> excellent John, thank you so much for 
your time and for your great ideas. I'm sure a lot of people are going to jump on Amazon and buy your book um, just because it's worth it. I can second that. Thanks a lot for your time. I'm your host, Cyril. And remember, life is an adventure. Live it. Now go train. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Is it the number five action? No, it's the four. Number four, take action. Take action. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, John. I love Talk it. to you later. I'll see you soon. Okay, bye-bye.